More than 8 million Ukrainians have fled their country and become refugees across Europe since Russia's invasion, according to a U.N. data survey. More than 5.3 million others are still estimated to be internally displaced within Ukraine. The number of combatants and civilians killed in Ukraine since February 24, 2022 is hard to determine, but the numbers are in the tens of thousands and getting higher every day during the Russo-Ukraine war. What steps, if any, did Western countries and Russia take to avoid that war? I'm Norman Gilliland. This is University of the Air. Did the Western powers make and break promises to Russia before 2022? And did Russia make an effort to come to terms with Ukraine via non-coercive means? With me is David McDonald, professor of history at the UW-Madison. Welcome back to University of the Air. Thanks for having me. I always enjoy being here. It's going to be a story perhaps uh, without a foreseeable end, but the main question we have at hand is how did we get into this Russo-Ukraine war in the first place? And I suppose that must start with the question as to exactly the relationship between Ukraine and Russia in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Very complex relationship. I... uh You'd really have to go back 19th century, 17th century to uh, to get the full answer. But uh, uh, President Putin said it quite clearly in an essay he wrote the summer before the invasion, uh, in which he uh, he offered a uh, a well documented but very uh, misleading uh, interpretation of the history of relations between Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, and uh, in that he basically claims that Ukraine and Belarus are inextricable parts of a greater Russia. And he's appealing to a type of argument that uh, that you first encountered in the 19th century, because uh, by mid-19th century, uh, you're getting a uh, stirring among educated Ukrainians particularly, that Ukraine had its own separate history, its own separate nationhood, and deserves some sort of recognition. Not necessarily self-determination, but recognition as a uh, as a separate people, whereas Russians tended to regard and, and continued throughout the Soviet period, often regarded the Ukrainians as brothers, often little brothers, uh, and uh, as uh, as just an offshoot of uh, of the great uh, great Russians, which doesn't mean fantastic or huge, just means it's a geographical designation. And they use the term little Russia to refer to Ukraine, which Ukrainians nowadays bridle at, but in the old days was really just, a, again, a geographical designation. Well, what was the political relationship? Ukraine as an independent country and Russia having some uh, empirical designs on their surrounding countries at that time or what that's was the uh, no it's uh well it's a it's a uh, uh a really interesting situation that erupts in the 17th century and i won't go into the ins and outs of it, it involves cossacks and uh, involves a uh, religious affiliation the cossacks were tend to be mercenaries selling border patrol services and running uh, running a side gig as uh, uh once in a while as a highwayman uh in what was at that time a, a sort of power vacuum on the north shore of the Crimea into uh, into present day uh, present day Ukraine, and uh, Pol and it, with the Polish uh, monarchy, they uh, an officer corps enjoyed more or less the rights of nobles, and in Poland we can talk about noble rights. Uh, they were uh, a, pretty much a semi sovereign uh, class. Uh, their peasants tend to be Ukrainian speaking or Belarusian speaking. But the Cossacks uh, uh, were finding themselves in a situation that in order to keep their privileged status in Polish society, they had to accept uh, a version of Catholicism that we know as Greek Catholicism, more or less a lot of the liturgy in that preserved from uh, Orthodox practice, but uh, the acknowledgement of the papacy as uh, the supreme authority in the church and the acceptance of certain other things. And... And this was a very bitter rivalry going far back in Russo-Polish relations and in relations between the, or, between the Orthodox and Catholic churches. Um, and so the Cossacks asked for uh, asked to uh, come under the protection of Muscovy on the condition that they could keep their old laws and customs and internal uh, internal government. And uh, and well, 
this takes place in uh, 1653 at a place called Pyrioslav, uh, and there is a bitter different there there arise bitter differences between the two groups, the Muscovites and the Cossacks, over what exactly they agreed to. And this becomes an apple of discord for the next 150 years before Ukraine is decisively absorbed into the empire. Not even for about 50, 60 years when uh, uh, Peter more or less uh, breaks the Cossacks who had, uh, uh, again, there's a more complicated story in that. Uh, and then Catherine II completes the job in the 1770s with the, uh, uh, with the full incorporation of the, uh, uh, the abolition of the one Cossack host, that was their unit organization, that uh, she uh, saw as a, a potential source of disorder. And so after that, uh, as elsewhere in Eastern Europe, we see, uh, we see these nationalities who hadn't traditionally enjoyed any sort of sovereignty or recognition the Czechs, Slovaks, uh, uh, Hungarians rediscover their Magyar, which uh, uh, becomes a badge of nationhood. Uh, Serbs, Bulgarians under Ottoman rule, they all start discovering they have a history. And the moment you have a history, you can understand yourself as a nation in a trajectory of development towards full maturity and nationhood. Uh, you are an individuated society different from the surrounding societies. And that, that becomes a very powerful force in educated Ukraine uh, uh, by the late 19th century and, is a re- and, and takes substantial form after 1905 and the revolution that we see political factions forming. And then during the revolutions themselves, at 1917 through 1921, we see the emergence of a succession out of the wreckage of the collapse of the Romanov Empire and in the middle of the civil war that uh, comes after the Bolsheviks seized power in uh, October slash November 1917, we see a succession of independent Ukrainian states, uh, le- representatives of which sign a, the peace treaty on the Eastern Front at Brest-Litovsk in the spring of 1918 and are recognized by the Germans, with whom they've got an agreement for a grain supply. Um, and that becomes, in some ways, a dream or a moment that... Ukrainians remember, and they want to have Ukrainian as their own language in, in the Ukrainian SSR later Pretty on. similar to Russian, though? Uh, very, yeah. They're, to a certain degree, they're mutually intelligible, to the extent that uh, uh, 19th century Russian officials, uh, well, as of the, uh, the so-called M's decree in 1876, did not recognize it as a different language, and they prohibited the use of Ukrainian in uh, public, public documents or in, in state relations. What roughly kind of borders would Ukraine have had by the time of, say, the Russian Civil War? Um, well, the area we now know as Galicia was still under Austrian rule, as it had been since partitions of Poland. Yeah, and uh, actually, it had been part part of Poland, greater Poland, since since shortly after the Mongol invasion, or it gradually hit, uh, hitched its start. The two provinces, Galicia and Volhynia, uh, became more or less, the elites became integrated into Polish legal and social orders. Uh, so it would be, oh, about 200 miles west of Kiev. And, uh, That's a, before you go farther, how do you want to pronounce these various terms in Ukrainian Ways I or want, Russian I ways. Use, well, I, I could do both. Uh, in Ukraine, it's Halichizna and Volin. And Kiev. And Kiev. Uh, and yeah, well, <laughs> the Ukrainians I grew up with pronounced it Kiev. Uh, and they were tended to be the grandchildren of uh, Galician immigrants. Uh, but yeah. uh, uh, if I, English is long referred to it just Galicia. So it's gotten, yeah, it's it's, it's kind of uh, contentious oh, still, isn't it, as to how to pronounce these things? We've just finished producing a 22-book uh, history or set of uh, uh, set of uh, treatments of Russia during from 1914 to 1922, and about halfway through, as things started heating up between Russia and Ukraine, we realized we had to do all these place name alterations, and always with a parenthesis, <laughs> and always explaining what we were doing, and uh, it. Uh, now, editorial inconvenience is not going to <laughs> – it's not in any way proportional to what's going on now. But, no. but what happens is during Soviet rule, because Ukraine eventually gets absorbed, 
And there are parts of the borders, the other borders, and we see it right now, Donetsk and Luhansk, as Ukrainians call it, Donetsk and Lugansk, as Russians call it. Um, they were, they had been settled by industrialization, uh, iron ore and coal industries developed there. And we see a lot of foreign investment in the late 19th century. A guy, the one I always like, there's a Welshman named Hughes, who uh, sets up uh, a, 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 an iron foundry, as I recall. Um, and the the town's named after him. It's called Yuzovka. So how do you, how do you blend Welsh and Russian? Uh, but mind you, there are not as many consonants as there would have been in Welsh form. But uh, um, but uh, this is the hometown of Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev and Leonid Ilyich Brezhnev. And in we, what is now what is uh, well, it was it was Ukraine as of. Uh, yeah, uh, from the formation of the National Republics between 1922 and 1930. Um, but, and, and in those provinces, they speak sort of a, a mix of Ukrainian and Russian. They've got a very distinct accent. Uh, Gorbachev had the same accent. He was from farther south and east. But uh, they, a lot of the pronunciations tend to uh, be very Ukrainianish. And um, but uh, but they thought of themselves as Russians, and a lot of them did. But it was it was sort of a borderland. It was a mix of various populations. What about Crimea? Uh, well, Crimea was originally part. Uh, well, Crimea was uh, was a, a successor state to the Mongol Empire, and when the Mongol Empire starts uh, falling apart in the late late fourteen hundreds into the fifteen hundreds, they emerge as a separate khanate, uh, uh, and uh, they come under the sovereignty, their their vassal state to a suzerain power of the Ottoman Empire, which is the dominant Black Sea power in those days. Uh, and they retain that status. And uh, then the Crimean Tatars, they're called, the uh, in, well, the, the dominant population at that time, had bedeviled Muscovy, the predecessor to Russia, uh, from before the reign of Ivan the Terrible. He reigns about 15, 1546 to uh, 1584, thereabouts. Uh, and uh, he actually had to suspend one of his campaigns against uh, truculent or against recalcitrant nobles because uh, uh, Tatar band, a Tatar outfit had invaded uh, just south of Russia, uh, Muscovy, uh, Moscow. Uh, so, uh, cat, uh, as through the 18th century, Russia begins a steady advance towards the north shore of the Black Sea. Crimea was still the Khanate of Crimea. Uh, Catherine II engages in a war with the Ottoman Empire in the 1770s, and by 1774, uh, they have taken uh, Crimea, uh, and it becomes incorporated by 1782, annexed the Russian Empire. Uh, when the revolution comes in 1917, and they withdraw the new map of the Soviet Union in 1922-23, Crimea remains part of the Russian Soviet Federated Socialist Republic. Well, they want, I presume, is the is the big reason for that the warm water ports. Uh, I would I would suspect. Well, I know that I was giving lectures on a uh, river cruise tour for Wisconsin alumni and others uh, in the summer of 2014, and during the question and answer period uh, period after a talk on, of course, Crimea had just been annexed. I think the uh, Russian. Uh, Russian militia people had shot down the MH17, the flight from Kuala Lumpur to uh, Amsterdam. Um, in the course of all this, and talking about Crimea, a couple of naval, there were a couple of graduates of the Naval Academy on the tour, and they both got up and said, "I don't know why uh, the administration wasn't aware of the, the possibilities happening and that because now <laughs> Crimea housed the lar this huge." port facility for the Black Sea Fleet, right? Uh, and, uh, and they'd sunk billions of rubles into building it during the late Soviet period and, and updating it, and they had it on lease from Ukraine. Now, why was it with Ukraine? Because in 1953, that self-same Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev had more or less gifted it to Ukraine in honor of the 400th anniversary, uh, 300th anniversary of the signing of the agreement of Pereyaslav between the Cossacks and Muscovy. Which presumably he figured was fine because it was still going to be Soviet anyway. Exactly, exactly. Uh, 
And now what complicates matters further and is actually getting more to proximate causes for the current conflict is um, the Soviet Union collapses in 91. As a matter of fact, there's a very substantial vote in favor of separating in the fall of 1991 uh, in a Ukrainian referendum. Not as, not as overwhelming as we see in the Baltic states uh, or elsewhere, Georgia, but uh, pretty substantial given the fact that Russia, Russian will be the lingua franca still of Ukrainian cities, uh, uh, any major size uh, a city. It is seen as the language of education. Ukrainians find it easy to access. You're starting to get more substantial uh, uh, sense of ability to, uh, for national assertion, which in many ways grows when Galicia is incorporated in the Soviet Union during World War II. It had previously been part of Poland. And, the, and even under before World War I, Galicia had been uh, sort of the uh, redoubt of free Ukraine because the Austrian, the Habsburg monarchy, uh, didn't mind seeing a fractious nationalist Ukrainian population because it kept their, they kept the Poles, who were the governing <laughs> nationality in that province, in check. And so uh, any authoritative uh, history, any authoritative national document, nationalist document uh, that wasn't published in Paris or London or more Philadelphia and later Canada uh, was published in Galicia and then smuggled into Ukraine. Uh, so Galicia comes in and they're a real force for, uh, for, for claiming national identity. And by this time too, after World War II, you got a huge diaspora population. From from where? Uh, largely Galician in North America, uh, but I know uh, I grew up in a part of Canada that's very heavily Ukrainian, and they tend to be Halichan, as uh, what they call them, Galicians. Uh, in the states, it's more a uh, mix of, uh, of metropolitan and uh, Galicians, but in Australia, Galicians. And these uh, participants, uh, members of the diaspora, tend to be Ukrainian nationals. Oh, very much so. Yeah, well, friends of mine. Grew up doing Ukrainian dancing and going, and we uh, there actually there were there were two, and it's something you still see in Ukraine too. There were interesting tensions between those who were Orthodox and those who were Greek Catholic, or up in Canada you say Ukrainian Catholic. Uh, for instance, my my nephew married uh, daughter of a f former hockey player who has a nice farm in uh, Central Saskatchewan. Uh, he and his brother have maintained the Orthodox Church on their property that goes back to when they first settled. Whereas in my my hometown, uh, the largest Ukrainian churches are Catholic, and there tend to be a certain factionalism. But they united on the idea in the diaspora. They prided themselves on preserving a free Ukrainian culture, a, a, a sense that was reinforced by the influx of uh, uh, displaced persons after World War II, right? Because uh, and so uh, so. In 1991, we see Ukraine, along with the rest of the, rest of the former Soviet republics, self-constituted as an independent republic, with the agreement with uh, of President Gorbachev and ultimately of President Yeltsin, who succeeds him uh, after Christmas Day in 1991. And, um, and in 1994, you, the governments of Ukraine, Russia, Kazakhstan, I believe, and uh, the United States, uh, Ukraine, Britain, United States, Kazakhstan, and the Russian Federation signed agreement uh, uh, on the disarmament of Ukraine of its nuclear weapons. And one of the provisions in the treaty, as I recall, is that uh, that uh, Britain and the United States uh, would guarantee the preservation of Ukrainian sovereignty. And and uh, when Crimea happens, this doesn't happen. Uh, people seek mediation, and the uh, and Germany and France intervene. We start getting the Minsk talks, uh, which are, uh, you know, also what we forget with Crimea is this is when we see uh, a co coalition and to find original causes are really tough. But uh, they're they're increasingly uh, Donetsk and Lugansk have been the home part home provinces for a party called the Party of the Regions, many of whom were sympathetic to uh, good relations with Russia. Uh, many of them were Russian-speaking, uh, and uh, and again, borderland area, um, and uh, we see uh, a civil conflict develop, which soon gains support from Russian nationalists who form their own uh, 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 militia brigades and come in. And there's obviously when we think of the MH17 
uh, incident. The, the, the evidence points to a Book II missile. It's a Russian military art, uh, material. Do we, do we want to uh, get in for a moment to what you think was behind that shooting down of that passenger plane by I, a Russian? I don't really know. Um, could have been... Uh, the one thing you saw a lot that summer was people uh, saying, well, it looked like a, a bomb or it looked like some sort of military aircraft. It could have been uh, – I've always – the one that, that I, I think of as a as an analogy, and I haven't read a lot into it, but I remember at the time was that Korean airliner being shot down in uh, summer yes. 82, I think, Flight 07. By the Soviets. Yeah, by the Soviets. And my hunch was that uh, – that this uh, airliner had, uh, had breached uh, Soviet airspace, probably inadvertently, and whoever was the commander in the uh, in the base, the air defense base on by Vladivostok or wherever, I think uh, they waited and waited and waited, and then decided it's better to ask forgiveness than to ask permission, and uh, so they they shot it down. And I think something similar. There was a misconnect somewhere, but of course. Regardless of the cause, the Russians deny it furiously, including uh, the fact that it's a, a, a Book II missile and it's showing up on YouTube and it's showing up on uh, on aerial reconnaissance photos and like satellite photos. So, uh, um, so we've had an ongoing conflict there since 2014. Any Ukrainian will remind you of that originally, and with uh, and to, to yeah, and so you've got all these stressors going on. And uh, you've also got a country, Ukraine, uh, is just terribly weakened. And something I think that after 1991, its economy is in a shambles. What's worse, and I don't think people have paid sufficient attention to that, um, it is quite corrupt right from the outset, as as are a lot of the post-Soviet states, because... And my my hunch would be because the legacy administrators, the legacy bureaucrats who, you know, ran the rail system, who were in charge of overseeing, uh, uh, you know, uh, contracting work and maintenance of infrastructure and uh, tax forms and running the courts and that, uh, they were the only expert. They were the only people with experience. It was basically Soviet administrators in a new system, not unlike what's going on in the Russian Federation. And as in the Russian Federation and elsewhere, you uh, saw also the development of this uh, uh, semi-gray economy where, with the emergence of the oligarchs in this economic vacuum. Not uh, quite black economy, but well, not quite Close enough. Either. And yeah. I, I've always felt there was a strong continuity between the old black market and the emergence of these oligarchs. Uh, just they were the only ones who were equipped in entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial activities outside of certain, um, uh, certain other professions. Um, we're going to look uh, more closely at uh, Ukraine in recent years and in particular what Russia wants out of Ukraine and what steps Russia may have taken prior to war mm-hmm. to bring Ukraine more closely into the Russian orbit. Right okay. after the, uh, We'll be back right after this on WPR. I'm Norman Gilliland, back with David McDonald professor of history at the UW-Madison, and we're looking at the relations between Ukraine and Russia and the Western powers leading up to the war in Ukraine that began in February of 2022. And we've gotten to the point where it's 1991 or so, the Soviet empire is broken up, and some really no pun intended, groundbreaking relations are uh, developing between the Western powers and Russia. Mm-hmm. A whole new ball game in some ways. What kind of demands, given that the Soviet Union has broken up, is Russia making on the West as these former Soviet states join NATO in particular? Well, uh, this this starts really in the uh, summer of 89-90 with uh, – uh, this, with the uh, spontaneous rec- uh, reunification of Germany, when the when the wall came down, question was, uh, what's going to happen with the old East Germany, right? Uh, this, the Red Army or the Soviet Army had, had evacuated, but wh- how is it going to align? What is because? And this has been a problem since World War II. The Potsdam and Yalta negotiations is what is the status of the Republic of Germany going to be? 
Uh, and there, as we know, there are deep differences about that. Well, through this, these months, we see ongoing negotiations between Helmut Kohl, representatives of Bush, the elders' administration, and, uh, and the, uh, the Soviet government. And uh, there's a lot of sensitivity over, well, since the Federal Republic of Germany was part of NATO, what's going to happen to the old German Democratic Republic? And there seems to be a lot of crossed wires and, and interesting memories over this because uh, the Soviets, uh, even the most liberal, uh, feel that the Americans had promised that, yes, uh, Germany would be integrated, was a NATO power, but they would not invent the other former Warsaw Pact states. Uh, and I, I was, uh, when I was getting ready for, for this discussion, I went out, you know, went online like everybody else, but I found interesting... Uh, Interesting presentations by two former senior executives, people, officials in the Bush administration who had been taking part in these negotiations. And one says, there's no promises made. And the other said, well, we did sort of uh, say uh, we'd respect their wishes in this. But both, and so they seem pretty diametrically opposed. The one thing that both sides, both uh, speakers agree on is that uh, they got the Soviets to admit that this wasn't the Americans' decision. This was the decisions of the newly, properly sovereign republics, that we, uh, nobody is going to prevent them from making the choice they did. So in some ways, that's just a, that's a, 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 a trump card, right? That, uh, w- and also, it's very much a product of a moment when the old Soviet Union had collapsed. And that's a, uh, that's a mindset that I think helps, well, first, by February t- 2022, uh, when they're getting geared up to invade, uh, they present conditions that are right, really just a bill of indictment. Uh, all these slights and insults and that that had accreted since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Between, between Ukraine and Russia? Between the Soviet Union and Russia and the Western powers. Uh, and why hadn't Britain and the U.S. intervened in 1994 uh, or, uh, or, or later? Because... Because why did they promise these uh, to guarantee the borders of sovereign Ukraine? Because nobody seriously thought this, Russia was a thing anymore. They thought it had its day. Um, Francis Fukuyama tells us that history is over. Right? There's no fundamental conflict anymore. Liberal democracy can take over the world. We had this sense. My colleagues in other social sciences talked about trans- transition and transitology on the assumption that there was going to be a natural migration to a liberal democratic order now that we had uh, free markets, right? Right. Um, and, but in the meantime, by 1997, we start seeing the former Warsaw Pact and former Soviet republics lining up to get into NATO and being admitted. And... This is also at the time when NATO was acting in the Balkans with the conflict there, and which is an area that the Russians had long considered their unique uh, sphere of influence. And this goes back to the 19th, 18th century, to Catherine the Great's reign. Um, and uh, we see the situation where wherever they look, Russians are reminded in a very infelicitous formulation from uh, President Obama that they're a second second class power, which uh, there are many things I admire about the Obama administration, but that is not one of them. It's not that, diplomacy. It was was gratuitous, and this is a country that Putin already by 2007 was objecting to this unilateral domination and disrespect from the states. Uh, this uh, famous speech he makes at a security conference, annual security conference in Munich, uh, and if you're a Russian of our age. Uh, say if you're 65 to 75 now, uh, or even for 45 to 75 now, uh, your experience in the 90s was not one of great exaltation and dash to freedom and uh, embracing McDonald's. It was one of ruin and humiliation. To go to Ukraine now, and there are tremendous, a lot of family ties across that port, now you had to show a passport. Or to go to your favorite spa in Georgia, you had to show a passport. These used to be borderless spaces, right? Go to Crimea, where the best sanatoria, where you need a passport, uh, if not a visa, and uh, different money. And, and so, uh, and they think, well, this used to be ours. 
And and one thing Putin was very effective at from the beginning was appealing to the idea of restoring Russia's greatness, restoring its rightful place in the world. And so all these things accrete. But during the early 2000s, oil prices are up. Uh, Russians are feeling a lot more prosperity. Putin, unlike the shambolic Yeltsin, uh, appears to be what Russians would call a serious man. A lot of greed, uh, had been part of the... Uh, KGB. Well, he'd been in the KGB. I always think we, uh, you know, George Bush was the senior, was the director of the CIA. Right. And we don't attribute those motives to him. I think, though, uh, Putin was in East Germany when the wall falls and seems to have experienced that as an acute humiliation. Uh, Plus there are older grievances about attributing credit for victory over the Nazis. and Uh, These things all get rolled up and... Everything, and so we start seeing, and then, but really, what really starts getting Putin, uh, the government's attention in Russia is the first, the Orange Revolution in 2004. And this is a younger generation of Ukrainians who yes. are uh, freedom-loving. Well, that's or, what, that, that was their, the majority were, yeah. Uh, for independence. For, for maintaining independence. What had happened was there had been an obviously rigged election. Uh, some people might remember uh, Viktor Yushchenko, who was a, this uh, leader who'd been poisoned. Yes. Uh, poisoned by a poison that, that uh, disfigured his face, too. He had to go to Austria for several weeks to recover. It was very serious. And he comes back, and he's defeated by Alexander Yanukovych from the Party of the Regents, from the Donetsk-Luhansk area, um, who was very pro-Russian and was very uh, wanted to establish deeper ties with Russia. And and it leads to demonstrations in this square of Maidan Nezalezhnosti, the, the square of independence. Uh, and it's part of this broader wave of so-called color revolutions, the tulip revolution in, in Kyrgyzstan, the rose revolution in Georgia that brings Mihail Saakashvili to power, uh, all, you know, Lebanon, there's cedar revolution. Uh, uh, and it's very alarming to Russians, and especially, I imagine, to a person like Putin, because uh, uh, they're... There's a sense of uh, filial relations with Ukraine. It's just it's how they've always. That's how Russians have always regarded them. Sort of regarded them as corrupt, as uh, backwards, and all the rest of it. But still, they're ours. So, what does uh, Putin do to try to maintain, if not a, an old Soviet relationship with Ukraine, but let's say a uh, paternalistic? A paternalistic relationship with a an independent Ukraine. Well, they sort of have a okay. They read they, uh, the Supreme the Ukrainian Supreme Court uh, orders a re, uh, re, re a do over of the elections, and Yushchenko wins, uh, and at least the tense but generally correct relations. Uh, uh, the Ukrainian Ukrainian oligarchs make a lot of money uh, invested in the Russian market. The, uh, say uh, Petro Poroshenko, uh, later president of Ukraine, uh, uh, makes a fortune selling chocolates in, in, in the Russian Federation. Uh, others have uh, have big ties in the steel industry. Um, that uh, that the economy's uh, the, the Russian economy is beneficial to the Ukrainian economy, but Ukraine is still also corrupt in a way that uh, and and the Yushchenko government starts falling apart. But in two thousand eight. Uh, we might remember the uh, conflict between Georgia and Russia. Yes. And that is partially sparked by uh, apprehensions of Georgia joining NATO. Uh, that Putin appears to start drawing lines or to try and cultivate pro-Russian governments in Ukraine. And, I mean, uh, it's nothing new in the Soviet scheme of no, things, no, constantly no. kind of getting inroads into ostensibly democratic governments. Yep, and and one can make an argument that looking at the previous hundred years of European history, uh, it's not too good to let your enemies get that close to your borders. And he's starting yes. to think of NATO, who uh, they once held language about being partners. He's starting, and he still uses the term with an increasing tone of irony in his discussions of international relations, but our partners in the West. Uh, Feeling uh, encroachment from NATO. Oh, sure, very much so. And, uh, and also lack of respect and lack of regard, lack of uh, seriousness about Russia. Uh, things are going on in the Middle East that underscore that as well. Uh, and uh, on top of this more this broader sense of grievance among Russian society over all these 
changes and overall this sort of lack of regard for the accomplishments of the Soviet Union, in which many were proud. Uh, and so by so what happens in 2014, uh, in 2010, uh, Yanukovych is elected legitimately, legitimately all this time because uh, the coalition that put Yushchenko in power just falls apart. There's a lot of uh, a lot of vendettas going on, a lot of personal issues, a lot of corruption. And what's you know one thing that's interesting and sad about the period from the first Maidan to 2014 is you've got one of the most vibrant and self-assertive civil societies in post-communist in post-Soviet uh, space. Uh, the mobilization is really spectacular in 2004 and is again in 2014. In terms of just r- the internal running yes. of Ukraine. And, and, a, and a legitimate aspiration or claim to some sort of freedom and, uh, and law, rule, uh, rule under law. Um, but an inability to create a state that would uh, would uh, be able to mediate these processes and, make, and bring them into life. So what actually sparks Putin than to re-annex or to uh, reabsorb Crimea? Well, you've got a Yanukovych government. You've got uh, the government caught between uh, uh, having talks with Europe. There's genuine feeling about being more closely integrated in the European Union, possibly even NATO, uh, but certainly the European Union because that had helped with uh, – uh, that would help to uh, drain the labor surplus in in Ukraine. That a lot of Ukrainian migrants uh, worked illegally in Poland and neighboring neighboring countries. Uh, they want to legitimate legitimate a lot of these relations. But there's also strong there's a strong feeling that they're Western, they're European, and they want to be in that club, uh, like Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia. Uh, and uh, in late 2013, we see what seems to be the acceptance by the uh, Yanukovych government of European overtures in exchange for generous subsidies to start orienting more towards Europe. And by by our Christmas or early New Year's, uh, the uh, Putin government comes in with a, a large offer that would really outbalances, uh, overbalances the uh, Euro- European offer. And the Yanukovych government that does a about turn and starts uh, starts uh, talking about closer relations, partnership with their historical neighbors and friends, Russia, and uh, and this sparks new mobilization, what we now call Maidan, with that rolling. And these demonstrations start already before Christmas, uh, uh, before the New Year, and uh, they extend and gather gather momentum. And the Yanukovych government keeps trying to. Re- uh, show some restraint with repressive measures, but inevitably this turns into a full-fledged confrontation and there's deaths and shooting and uh, uh, we see uh, the, the Ukrainian militia, the under government militia, the, the police and the armed police uh, uh, shooting into crowds. We also see, in fairness, uh, uh, we see some far-right-wing militias in Ukraine. Uh, who uh, are... The so-called uh, Nazis? The, yeah, the Bandirossi. And they... they it's a provocation, but it's all sorts of things. It's an overdetermined uh, phenomenon. But they uh, is, they take up the name of a notori- notorious Ukrainian uh, military leader who uh, attached each, he recruited a force and put on the side of the Nazis. They his defenders would say it was the devil. It was the devil they knew that uh, Stalinism was worse than it was the lesser of two evils, and Stalinism was worse than than Hitlerism, and uh, plus other ethnic conflicts, including with the Jewish population in Western Ukraine, that uh, would have contributed to it. But it was very easy to characterize them as Nazis, given the insignia of their regalia. But this was more visible than their actual weight in events. But it lends fuel to the fire, uh, and then we see after that. We see the Sochi Olympics, right, the Winter Olympics uh, in 2014. And about two weeks after that, we start hearing about these little green men going into Crimea. And it's these uh, soldiers in uh, thinly veiled uh, uh, military garb. And it's a rolling and slow motion takeover of Crimea. Uh, Because this is the heart, Putin tells Russians, 
this is the heart of our culture. This is where our Christianity was accepted and created. This is the ba- this is the cradle of our great Russian civilization, of our Russian world, Ruski Mir, which is going to become an increasingly uh, visible slogan as the years go on. The Russian world, that's uh, one thing that uh, Putin certainly has been a strong advocate for. We'll look further at the relationship between Russia and Ukraine and the West, too, for that matter, when we return in a moment. This is University of the Air. I'm Norman Gilliland, back with UW-Madison, Professor of History David McDonald, and we're looking at relations, if you want to call them that, big word in this case, between Russia and Ukraine, and also the part that the Western powers have played in that relationship. In 2014, Russia, with some, let's say, history, justification on their part, moves into Crimea, that part of Ukraine which has the Black Sea ports and also had been until, what, 30 years before or so, a part of uh, Russia or the Soviet Mm -hmm. Union. The, let's see, Obama administration, it would have been at that point, does what in response to that uh, relatively quiet takeover of Crimea? Well, there's a refusal to recognize it, but there and there's some sanctions, but it's actually quite muted. Uh, and for their part, Russians show extreme, uh, ext- huge adulation for this move. Uh, that, uh, again, that same summer where I was there for the, on the cruise, when we got to Moscow, everybody was wearing these George ri- ribbons, orange and black ribbons, originally an, uh, an imperial era decoration, that was given to all the part of the veterans in World War II as well. It was revived for that, and everybody was wearing these ribbons. And this was and another element in all this is uh, playing on this more this longer term abiding grievance over the lack of recognition for Russian sacri- Soviet sacrifice in, in World War II. So you get all that, uh, but. Uh, everybody, the NATO powers asked for some sort of mediated settlement. And there's a, and people are aware of the growing conflict in Donetsk and Luhansk provinces. And there's concern over that. There's obvious concern over Crimea. Uh, and there, as I say, there's some sanctions, but nothing in the way of real sanctions because, of course, by this time, too, you've got the, uh, <laughs> speaking of anniversaries, you've got the mess left over by the Iraq invasion blowing up in this in these uh, states in the Middle East, the Syrian civil war and the Kurds are... Uh, are reasserting themselves, and uh, the Iraqi situation turns into uh, more of a, a mess. And, and the Russians and the Americans, as far as I recall, uh, respect each other's participation in uh, in dealing with this uh, chaos. But uh, it's an extremely volatile time. Uh, and for the Russians, it, it's critical for Putin because it revises popularity at a time when the economy is just starting to tip back into... Uh, less prosperous times with uh, oil prices, and um, so over the next few years, there's a there's an ongoing low level war in the the uh, in the border provinces. Um, uh, the the industrial those were the industrial yes, part of Ukraine, yeah. Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, you've got uh, Poroshenko's president, but his regime is uh, hagridden as well by by corruption and by growing lack of public confidence. Although he does very well. Uh, in the western provinces, in the most uh, the most sort of national, and there's there's all sorts of discussion about whether Ukraine is uh, excessively regionalized or whether there's a generational conflict that explains the differences. But it's it seems like a deeply divided society, uh, and now we start getting to uh, how it's not just why, but why did Putin and his advisors consider this a possible move by February of 2022? The right? invasion, yeah, and. Part of it is Ukrainian society appears divided. They finally have presidential, new presidential in, February, in 2019. And who they elect, from the point of view, it's a, from the Russian's point of view, this guy's a clown, a stand-up comic. Well, literally, uh, he is yeah, a comedian. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, as was pointed out to me the other day at another place I spoke, he was also, uh, Zelensky was also a very canny businessman, had his own production company, uh, managed a lot of uh, properties. His TV show was uh, compared to the Seinfeld of uh, Ukrainian TV. And off, uh, he himself was a native Russian speaker, and he's Jewish. 
and uh, and and so I think the Russians don't take him seriously. At the same time, as you know, it's not saying tr- telling truth out of school. The United States is terribly divided. Yes, well, over, sure. Over the uh, not just over the f- outcome of the election and over, but uh, over the allegations of Russian uh, interference in the, in the election, like and the rolling controversies over that. Plus, the governments and especially the presidents abandon in criticizing the other NATO powers for being soft and for not spending enough. They got to pull their own load. There's uh, repeated threats to withdraw from the alliance that was uh, that was uh, by the, 2021, 2022. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's uh, pay more or yeah. NATO falls apart. Yeah, or, kind of or we, we take our we take our tanks and go home. Um, and and NATO's divided. Because uh, you've had Brexit in 2016. Yes. You've got uh, Viktor Orban and uh, the Kaczynski brothers, Viktor Orban in Hungary, the Kaczynski brothers in Poland. They're waging sort of uh, low-grade warfare against the rest of the European Union that is subsidizing them quite extensively. Uh, And wherever Putin looks, it's divided. And uh, there doesn't seem to be any resolve. And I don't think they take Ukraine very seriously, especially now under Zelensky. They've probably got a decent intelligence network operating there because they're, you know, as in any situation of this sort of change, you've always got some of those who, well, think of, uh, there's the scene out of Exodus where some of the former slaves are yearning for the flesh pots of Egypt. There's always, there's, there's always a, a, a part of society will have a nostalgia feel of these. So I think they thought they had a lot of sympathy given the turmoil in Ukrainian politics and economy. And I think they thought it would be a dawdle. And, uh, just thought they would be able to just uh, march right in yeah, and intimidate yeah. immediately and, uh, and take over yeah. and make it short and quick yeah. and fast. Yeah. Uh, what they, uh, I gather officers were told to uh, pack their dress uniforms uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, be there for the celebration, the installation of the new government, right, three, four days later, which is very historically ironic because uh, – the, the Nazi soldiers besieging Leningrad in World War II were receiving similar instructions for a victory celebration back in '41. That is ironic. Yes, and uh, the dress uniforms have yet to come out. That's correct. <laughs> so do reliable tires. That <laughs> the one of the more interesting yeah. things we hear in the early part of the campaign is uh, the uh, Russian military was supplied by contracts now. Uh, and uh, some contractor who had the uh, franchise for all the uh, tires for these sport vehicles had had charged them for German tires, all-weather tires, but he, he bought Chinese because they're way cheaper and he could pocket the difference. And uh, and those tires break down going through the winter roads and the, the, the thaw in uh, eastern Ukraine, and that's part of what paralyzes the column that allows them to be bombed at will by Ukrainians. Problem with uh, being involved in a kleptocracy, although, as you said, David, uh, there was a bit of a kleptocracy in Ukraine, too, oh, for all yeah. this. Everyone does seem to have been surprised, probably the Russians most of all, though, as to how tenacious Ukraine has been. They must have had, well, really good intelligence, but they must have had also a lot of preparation oh, yeah, up to that yeah. invasion. Yeah, I, I, I think that's probably – I think that's the case. Because they, they've been facing this uh, strategic threat in Crimea. And then on the eastern border with uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, mean, as, as it is. Um, and they've got an advantage because a lot of their senior command knows how Russian military operates because they were in it. And at the same time, they're getting training and uh, a lot of ordinances we know from the West. Also, it just shows the miscalculation that Putin and his advisors make that uh, what has this produced? Ukraine is united like never before. Even when on radio broadcasts and that you hear people being evacuated from, you know, this more than 20% of the population displaced, a lot of people you're hearing are native Russian speakers and they're referring switched to the over. Russians as bastards. Yeah, and, they've and got switched it. over to so Ukraine. Ukraine is united like never before. NATO. Sweden's been neutral since 1815. They went into NATO. Finland was for, forcibly neutralized after World War II. They've, they've just, they're two-thirds of the way in. Uh, all these powers that were at each other's throats are, are, are uni- unified now. That uh, everything that he thought he could depend on as uh, enablers 
has uh, vanished. And Zelensky, to use the popular uh, comparison, he's the Churchill of our times. Here's this guy. Who the thunk it? Yeah, indeed. And be and uh, browbeating the, the uh, Western powers for more support, and we're poning up, and understandably so. Off ramp for anybody in this: Russia, the Western powers, oh. Ukraine. Um, it's really for Russia and Ukraine. Uh, I can't see. I can't see one in the near future. There's just too much. Putin and his administration. Too much invested. Too much invested, and just this is this sense of grievance. Uh, in another setting, I called it imperial revanchism, the, the, the idea of reconstituting this empire. Uh, and, and, as a, and really, it's, it's, it's lashing out. It's, uh, uh, and Putin's generation feels that they were, they were swindled by history, and they want their due. Uh, and for Ukraine, they've, they've sworn to recover all... They, they believe in their own sovereignty, and they've recovered all the territory. Like... Uh, as I've said elsewhere, and I'm not advocating, I'm just saying, any if a Martian came to Earth, she'd say, um, okay, Russia keeps Crimea and Donetsk and Luhansk are the parts that, they, that want to be in Russia, uh, and Ukraine has to accept that, uh, but Russia has to accept Ukraine being accepted into NATO and the EU. But that's never going to happen. That's unacceptable. Before the conflict breaks out, uh, Lavrov, this foreign minister, lays out a set of necessary conditions to avoid conflict with Ukraine, one of which includes the demilitarization of all the Eastern European powers that had joined NATO since 1997, including the Baltic states, Bulgaria, Romania, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland, East Germany, I suppose, no, East Germany, no, but uh, if I, Romania should be in there. And, uh, uh, and that's the universe of possibility they're operating in. Well, I would say it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out, but that would be putting it way too mildly. It's going to be... It's terrible. It's yes, just, I mean, uh, there's no good way out of it is what no, we seem to be saying. No, nothing good has come out of this except for uh, uh, Western powers' appreciation of uh, the fragility of the international environment. And this, and the other thing we haven't even talked about is Central Asia and Chinese-Sino-Russian relations. In which Russia, I think, runs a real risk of becoming a vassal state of the Chinese, uh, the People's Republic well, of China. Well, they're, they're far less powerful than Yeah, China. oh, yeah. And the, as we know, the Chinese have ambitions, too. And a lot of money and a big population and big ambitions. Well, uh, David McDonald, thank you for giving us some insights into how we got where we are in uh, Russia and Ukraine and uh, the difficulties in unraveling the whole thing oh yeah well this is a, this is a knot that's uh, 600 years in the time it takes a, and the Gordian not only worked for Alexander it hasn't worked ever, very well ever since the sword has not worked too well nope I'm Norman Gilliland I hope you can join me next time around for University of the Air